American Forces Radio Network presents The Leadership List. Welcome to The Leadership List, a production of the American Forces Radio Network, because great leaders never stop learning. In this edition, retired Chief Warrant Officer, military journalist, and professor at Columbia College of Missouri, Mark Philip Yablanca, author of Vietnam Bao Chi, Warriors of Word and Film. Welcome, Mark, and thank you very much for joining me today. George, it's an honor to be with you and to be broadcast to all the folks out there who are serving our country so bravely. And you visited us once before and you came out and yes, do things appear any different here There's from your last visit? Yes, absolutely. There's been some remodeling since I was here probably in the early 2000s. I was uh, on assignment for a magazine called American Veteran Magazine, which is the quarterly for the AMVETS Veterans Group. And I did a piece on basically the history of AFRTS and AFN going back to World War II at its inception, all the way up through Vietnam and, and, and beyond. It's excellent. And when I start posting promotions for this particular episode i'll share that with uh, with everyone as well thank so yeah so. no problem uh, again thank you for being here i'm your host george mauer and i've got a a different a bit of a different podcast for you today mark and i will be talking about military journalism in vietnam including a few names you've probably heard before dale die a marine combat correspondent with three tours in vietnam who, after retirement, founded a company that teaches actors how to properly portray military members on screen. Of course, he's been involved with Platoon, Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, etc., etc., etc. Another well-known name, uh, at least for military journalists, is Ken Hackman, very well-known and respected Air Force combat cameraman. As a matter of fact, he is called the godfather by others in the career field. And Mark, you've done plenty of writing about the Vietnam War during your career. In fact, it's one of your specialties. What got you so interested in this particular subject? Well, I'm the Vietnam War was the war of my generation. And unfortunately, it's a war that I did not go to. I was one of those who was comfortable with what they called a 2S deferment. And so 1969, I was at the University of Oregon. The lottery came out and I drew a high number. And so I could breathe a sigh of relief uh, that I wasn't going to have to be sent uh, overseas. That's a decision that I, in later years, came to regret that I hadn't been to Vietnam in some capacity, George. At that point, I think I made it my mission as I got into journalism in the late 80s and drifted towards military journalism. I made it my mission to write about people who had either gone to Vietnam, possibly made the sacrifice of sacrifices, and uh, it remains my mission today. A noble one. Well, thank you. A very noble one. Vietnam, Bao Chi, on the leadership list. Making war more realistic on the big screen. Your first chapter dealt with a man by the name of Dale Dye, arguably the best known military journalist because of his work in Hollywood. Three tours of duty in Vietnam, as we just said, and he was always bothered by war movies. The military members were always starched and clean and in battle scenes, and so Dye started a company called Warriors, Inc., where he advises filmmakers and actors 
how to portray more realistic military roles. His work on the movie Platoon in particular is noteworthy, and you cover it in your book. Now, in your mind, what was the one most interesting thing about Dai's work on Platoon and why? Well, I think that Platoon was the first movie to deal with certainly Vietnam and one would argue war itself in the most realistic possible way that moviegoers such as myself and anyone else had had seen. It was one of those movies when it first came out yeah. where people had physical reactions yes. and you had to be careful yes. that realistic absolutely and and there was blood i remember dale telling me at one point that in his mind with the uh, films like the sands of iwo jima where sergeant striker john wayne dies you know on the battlefield there's you know you don't see anything you don't see blood you don't see guts you don't see the way it really is right and so i endeavored in in my chapter on dale to you know get into what it was that made him want to do what he does and does so explicitly well that he does and he actually took the platoon actors into a boot camp. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that story. Well, uh, basically, he taught all of them what it was to to be a soldier, to be a grunt, and to live the life that he himself had lived. And I asked him at one point who were his favorite actors, and he and he said they're all Toms: <laughs> <laughs> Tom Berenger, Tom Hanks, and Tom Cruise. Right. <laughs> And who each, of course, starred in their own version of military movies and absolutely and did well. So, and and I do remember from reading your book that he said a few of them he thinks they would have made it as military members. Mm -hmm. A few probably wouldn't, right? Yeah, but a few would have. Yeah. So, now Die and Platoon director Oliver Stone bonded very quickly. They did both Vietnam veterans, mm -hmm. both looking to bring more realism to the silver screen. Uh, what did Dai share with you about his relationship with Oliver Stone? You know, they basically, as you say, they bonded. They had a, they had a, I think, a joint mission to get the war on film and, you know, show the American public how it really was to be in Vietnam. I think both of them ran up against a stumbling block because at that point in time, the American public wasn't quite ready right. to to see that, to be to be faced with that. Oliver Stone, in fact, went on and, and uh, his film Salvador about the war in Central America was uh, actually released first and platoon was shelved. And uh, I'm perhaps just guessing at this, but I think when Salvador came out and people had the inkling of what it was to be in a war, although different, diff a different conflict, you know, they tried again. And this time, you know, they were successful in, in, in making the film and getting it out to distribution and, and the fame that it achieved. Well, for me personally, it was one of those one of those movies that I remember watching in the theater. Mm -hmm. You know, it was if you want to call it movie magic, Hollywood magic, whatever it was. I remember walking out of that theater completely blown away. Mm -hmm. We had never seen anything like that before. Right. And I would also add that that could be viewed. I had a similar reaction to you. And it was almost instantaneous, the respect that I, I drew, that I got out of that movie for the Vietnam right. veterans who... Who did Vietnam. not get a lot of respect coming exactly, home. Exactly. Right. 
I could tell you stories from here till next year of all the Vietnam veterans that I interviewed uh, who were spit on. Right. You know, uh, I write about a couple of them in my upcoming book about uh, the American Forces Vietnam Network. And I think what Platoon did was it made people see uh, how badly we had treated uh, the Vietnam veterans. Sure. Uh, you know, one of my friends who's in the book, Marvin Wolf, who was uh, with the 1st Air Cav in, on K in the Central Highlands in Vietnam, you know, got the question, uh, did you shoot anybody? And uh, Marv, of course, was a combat correspondent. And he said, oh, sure, usually at, uh, you know, ASA 200. I shot hundreds at ASA 200. <laughs> <laughs> so ASA 200 being a film speed. Yeah, absolutely. A right. camera yeah, film speed, yeah, right? Yeah. We need to clarify that. That. Yeah, just, just to be clear. For the non-photographer such as myself. <laughs> now, might be and, and uh, of course, that's back in the film days. Now, of course, everything's digital. So that really means nothing to a lot of folks. So right. I happen to be old enough that I recognized it, even though I'm not really a photographer. Yeah. Anyway, Dale and Stone, mm -hmm. uh, and they created such a realistic movie set on Platoon, which was shot in the Philippines, by the way. Right. It was so realistic with all the extras, all speaking Vietnamese, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Dai said he felt like he was back in country. Right. And just to, to explain what in country is, in country is a term military members use to talk about a place where like yes, a, a conflict is going on. When you're in Vietnam and you're there during the war, you, you call it being in country. Right. So something we still use today, as a matter of fact. Sure. Now, it was so realistic, he almost, I wouldn't say had a flashback, but it affected him. Right. Tell me that story. It still does from time to time, you know. He can be making a film and then all of a sudden be back at the bat. He was in in, in a way uh, during the Tet Offensive in 1968 where he was right. wounded. Right. Um, and, and he'll, you know, be placed, you know, momentarily uh, back where he was. Uh, but then he just moves on, you know gets back into the the filming of whatever project he's on. Right. And he's done he must have 50 or 60 credits on his oh, his page, his yeah. I what IMDb page I think they're called. Yes, exactly. And yeah. so but I, I did take a look at it and it's long and extensive very successful career. Born uh, on the 4th of July right. uh, being one of those Vietnam films. And he likes to show up in movies where where he where he, he is an advisor. Right. He likes to do little little cameos as he did in Platoon yes. and uh, a couple of other films. Yeah, I recently had the honor of having him guest uh, at a presentation I did in the book at the LA Center of Photography for the uh, American Society of Media Photographers. He and Ken and Bob Bayer, who was an editor for the LA Times, and Frank Lee, uh, another Marine Corps combat correspondent who did TV. Can you imagine lugging a TV camera, you know, and an M16 into battle right. and, I, I, and, and having to choose between which one to shoot? Of course, usually the M16 one out, right. which is exactly what Dale said. Basically, you come to a point, he told me, where the grunt part of you takes over and the camera gets put away as to, if you're a writer, your pad of paper and your, and your pen or pencil. Simple self-preservation, basically. Right. Absolutely right. Now, to step away from Hollywood a little bit, mm -hmm. the uh, life of a Marine combat correspondent in Vietnam did get a bit hairy at times. Mm -hmm. And uh, we did talk about his time. He was there during the Tet Offensive. Right. What stories did he share with you about the times where 
he was more combat than correspondent. George, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a little bit from the book, uh, Vietnam Bao Chi, uh, Dale's chapter, in which he talks about his experience uh, in the battle for way during the I Tet think Pencil. that's a great idea. Okay. There were many times when I had to put aside the job in favor of the mission. Most of us became fairly well known in the outfits we covered, and they expected us to pack the gear and join the fight when it was on. We did that for the most part. Nothing could get you fired from or disrespected among the combat correspondents quicker than not hacking your load or helping out in a combat by busting caps at the enemy. There were many times when I was not much more than a glorified rifleman, especially when we were in a really heavy fight. I tried to be a good combat correspondent in the fighting for way during the Tet Offensive in 1968, for instance, but that didn't last long. They needed another rifle much more than they needed another correspondent observing the action. And it was during the Tet Offensive that Dai was wounded and where the combat he survived stays with him still. The citation that accompanied the Bronze Star with the Combat B tells the story. Here is how Dai himself recalls the incident that garnered him the medal. On the north side of Way inside the Citadel, I was running with Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. The camera was in my pack and I had picked up an M16 and a couple of bandoliers of ammo from a casualty. I shoot left-handed, so I was the one firing cover from behind a wall while a shot-up squad of infantry tried to cross an intersection. I was exchanging fire with an NBA machine gunner when all of a sudden my rifle seemed to explode in my hands. A sniper on the other side of the street shot at my head and hit the receiver of the M16, which promptly exploded into a shower of plastic and steel. Wow. I got some plastic from the stock and handguard all over my face, neck, and right hand. I was in shock, so I just sort of wandered back toward a battalion aid station, dripping blood and holding what was left of the rifle. That was it for me, in a way. Wow. Interesting. As a left-hander, I guess obviously there was a right corner, and a right-hander would have had to expose himself much more. Interesting. And, you know, and these are the things that those of us who have never really been in combat you never really think about stuff like that. Exactly. Interesting. Very interesting. Vietnam, Bao Chi, on the leadership list. The people of the mountain. Major Jim Morris. In your book, you called him the best known soldier writer of the Green Beret experience in Vietnam. While some of his best-known work came after he left the service, there's one notable moment while he was still in the army when he says some of his best work was lost to the intelligence troops. Uh, <laughs> tell me, tell me how that story went. Well, basically, they you know they had censorship on their minds, and uh, right. you know they got in the way of of a lot of. Uh, I, I suspect Jim was not alone. But they made the decision, no, this can't go out. And he was, you know, gung-ho Green Beret. Right. And so that was the end of that. And having, having had my work edited a time or two, mm -hmm. you know, it is, it's, it's tough. Because yeah. you, 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 okay, this is it. This is, this works. This yeah. is great. And then it comes back and go, mm, we can't really do that. Yes, yes. And that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. It really is. Yes. Now, 
After Morris got out of the war, he continued reporting on the Vietnam War as a civilian, and he was particularly passionate about the Montagnard people, mountain dwellers in Southeast Asia, mostly Vietnam. What did he tell you about the Montagnard people? Why do you think he identified with them so strongly? Great question. They were fierce fighters. They were loyal not only to our cause, uh, but to the French in, uh, to the French cause as well. And the French actually had a long presence in Vietnam before the war began. Absolutely. So, yeah. just a little quick history. <laughs> tip before before we continue. Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. Uh, the, uh, the the Montagnards were loyal to our to our cause and the French cause before us. They were fierce fighters, uh, according to Jim. Um, and Jim didn't feel quite the same, especially in the beginning of you know his first tour about the South Vietnamese. He often came away with the feeling that the South Vietnamese could have cared less who was there fighting in their behalf. He changed his mind a little bit as his tours in Vietnam continued, and he got. The the chance to to meet some of the uh, the Arvin, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam soldiers, but the Montagnards were loyal friends to our cause. Uh, their history was one that fascinated him. They also had a movement that Jim got involved with, uh, sort of extraneously, called Full Road. The Full Road movement actually strove to have the Montagnards have their own country in the Central Highlands. Mm. As such, they were also not liked very much by many. Many of the of the lowland Vietnamese people mm. who discriminated against them at the time. The Vietnamese word for the Montagnard, Montagnard meaning mountain people in French. Right. Um, the Vietnamese word is Moi. Moi loosely translated as savage. They promulgated less uh, legends about how Montagnards were born with tails, you know, the typical prejudicial stuff, right. etc. Going back to the 1800s, this stuff was. Because of the full row movement, the uh, South Vietnamese were not enamored of them for the most part. That's a prejudice that still exists to this day, in fact. The Hanoi government, of course, after April 30th, 1975, uh, the United States withdrew completely, end of the Vietnam War right. after Saigon fell. Right. The Hanoi government to this day carries on, most of the Montagnards are Christian or Catholic. They were animists in their origins, but they became, when the French came in, either Christian or Catholic. And so the Hanoi government uh, uh, is very prejudicial against them, forces them to intermarry, forego their customs, their language, and uh, will have been known to barge into Montagnard church services on Christmas and Easter. What's the primary religion in Vietnam? As a communist country, do they have no religion, or are they Buddhists? Or The religions are there. The, the most population is Buddhist, okay. but there's a substantial Catholic population, and, and uh, churches flourish. And I, you know, I haven't been back to Vietnam since 1995. Okay. Uh, earlier on, you, you know, I mentioned that I didn't go to Vietnam, Vietnam during the war. Uh, I did go three times since the war, 1990, 92, 95. Haven't been back since 95. And that I'm told things are much better now. Mm. But there's still sort of a watchful eye. So let's say if you are uh, an evangelical Christian, right. okay, uh, you better watch your P's and Q's. I see. Whether you're Vietnamese or from some other, from the United States, they don't take kindly to that. One would be advised if, you know, one has a plan to try to convert the masses to evangelical Christianity to be very careful because you're going to end up 
offending someone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, offending, but also ending up in a jail, possibly. I have a a good friend who was in the Air Force in Vietnam at Pleiku Air Base, uh, and he has gone back to help orphanages, Catholic orphanages, Mm. in the Central Highlands uh, many times. And the first time he tried, it was just a matter of bringing, you know, rice and and, uh, English books and uh, Christmas presents to the kids at the orphanage. The first time he did it, he was thrown into a jail in Pleiku. Wow. You know, successive trips uh, since then, you know, have not garnered him any type of punishment, but he still have to be careful what you say sure what you do vietnam bao chi on the leadership list cameras offer protection from bullets ken hackman yes legendary air force combat cameraman although linked in his linkedin page has him at 50 years of federal service your book documents his service at more like 64 years of service i'll go with what ken told me we'll get to that in just a moment now among other things he was the official photographer in later years for air force one right shot a number of official photos of the aircraft obviously but they also started calling him back to shoot more after he left obviously they liked what he was doing so much that they didn't think anyone else could do justice for air force one now he first set foot in vietnam in 1958 according to your book which gets him back to 64 years of service he was an airman second class at the time and he shared something that i've heard from a number of photographers who have experienced combat and we talked about it already just a little bit looking through the viewfinder sort of separates you from the events going on around you how did hackman describe feeling apart from the action while looking through a camera lens that's basically it uh he felt and he's not the only one of the photographers of the vietnam war that that has that opinion he felt that somehow he was not in danger but then once he puts the camera down you know it's like a catharsis it's like oh my god look where i am yeah exactly <laughs> and and in the protective yeah. mode uh, the first time i heard that story was uh when i went to a, a lecture given by eddie adams uh, eddie adams uh, although he was a photographer for the associated press in vietnam had been a marine in the korean war and that's when he adopted that same philosophy that ken did and roger hawkins another person uh, in the book did they just have this feeling of it's like armor you know Mm. interestingly enough i did a piece for the ambits magazine american veteran after i did my story on uh, afrts uh, and i shared that philosophy or that feeling that ken had and eddie adams had uh, with uh, the air force uh, uh, unit that uh, i interviewed for that piece and they disagreed you know, for the airmen of today that are out there doing it, airmen and air women. Yes. Uh, back in Vietnam, it was only the guys. Right. Today, you have people like the Air Force, Stacey Pearsall, who's well known for her photography in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. But uh, the, the guys that I interviewed for uh, the unit that was based out of South Carolina said, nope, I'm, you know, I'm in, I feel I'm in danger all the time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's mm. sort of like a protective blanket that sort of comes over them somehow. 
you know. And yet there's a famous photo. There was a book out 1997 called uh, Requiem for the Photographers Who Died in Vietnam and in the right. French Indochina War. Right. One of the Japanese photographers whose name escapes me at, at this time was uh, shooting, a, shooting his camera and a bullet you know, pierced the body of his camera. Wow. There's a picture in the book of his camera with a bullet hole in it. Vietnam, Bao Chi on the leadership list. An incredible homecoming. Stars and Stripes photographer reporter Tom Lincoln. Right. He was many one of the many journalists who covered Operation Homecoming. Yes. The release of American prisoners of war from Vietnam right. in 1973. Talk about a wow moment in history and what an incredible thing to be a part of. Share Lincoln's story of American POWs landing at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. What did he tell you about that? If you if you don't mind, I'd like to defer to the book and read just a paragraph. Sounds like a great it's idea. very moving. Yes, it was. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Tom told me, I still get a little choked up when I get to the point where I describe the arrival of the first plane. It was emotional for me then, and it's still emotional. I realize now that I was a witness to one of the great events in our country's history, and I feel enormously privileged to have been a part of it. The men who were imprisoned by the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong endured things that none of us, none of us can begin to imagine. Not only the torture, which has become legend, but also the fact that none of these men had any idea if they would ever be released ever see their loved ones again, or even survive to the day of release, if it ever came. A number of them did not, and those men and the ones who return deserve our lifelong gratitude, no matter what our opinions of the war. Wow. Yeah, and the, the second guy off the plane, a Lieutenant Commander Everett Alvarez, yes. he was the first and longest held POW. Yes. Yes. And his wife gave up on him while he was in right. Yes. In in captivity. Yes. Such a boy. Oh and, my God. You know, talk about it. It kind of chokes me up a little bit. Kind of oh, talking about it. Right. And uh, so he, in your book, yeah. you said you don't know or if Alvarez learned about his wife divorcing him before he got there or once arriving in the Philippines. Has any of that, have you learned more about that since writing the book? Well, I spoke uh, at great length with Commander Alvarez in pursuit of a story that I did on Vice Admiral Jim Stockdale, also one of the famous right. POWs at the Hanoi Hilton. And he wrote a book about it called Chained Eagle. And uh, it's been a while since I've gone through the book. But uh, my sense is that he learned about it while in Vietnam. I, I could see. be wrong about that. Okay. So, you know, uh, your listeners can correct me. Um, but um, yes, we spoke at great length about mostly about Stockdale, which was another honor that I had. Right. Well, if he did learn in Vietnam, I think it would almost be better. Because the idea of coming off that airplane, yes, wanting to be finally be reunited with your family all those years, yes. and finding her, she wasn't there. Absolutely. You know, I mean, whoa, what a stab in the heart. Vietnam, Bao Chi on the leadership list. 
Retired Air Force Colonel Rick Fuller. Mm -hmm. Before we get too far into his story, we're conducting this interview in the American Forces Radio Network Broadcast Center in Riverside, California. And Colonel Fuller was the commander of the Broadcast Center when it was still located in Los Angeles, Sun Valley to be exact. I was stationed at Sun Valley before we moved here to Riverside, and we'll come back to all this in just a moment, but uh, let's, let's, let's get back to Vietnam here. He was the public affairs officer for the 3rd Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Group, Pararescuemen, in Saigon back in 1971. And pararescuemen are the guys who rescue shot down pilots, often behind enemy lines, before the enemy can capture the pilot. Very dangerous work, obviously. One of the more notable rescue missions Fuller was involved with was Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Iseal Gene Hamilton. That story was loosely immortalized in the movie Bat 21. And that was the call sign for him while he was on the ground. Uh, The movie starred Gene Hackman and Danny Glover. Six men lost their lives trying to rescue Colonel Hamilton. Tell me about Fuller's role in that mission. What did he tell you about that moment? Well, I have this, uh, you know, I have this paragraph here, and he says, I was in Joker for many hours during the rescue efforts. That's perfect. Okay. For Fuller, another memorable mission was the rescue of Bat-21 Bravo, call sign for the downed USAF Lieutenant Colonel Seal E. Gene Hamilton, a signals intelligent expert and navigator aboard the EB-66 aircraft that was shot down behind enemy lines in Vietnam. The mission took 11 days. All told, six Americans lost their lives attempting to rescue Hamilton. The North Vietnamese attempted to capture him as well, but he was finally rescued in a land operation by U.S. Navy SEAL Lieutenant J.G. Thomas R. Norris and South Vietnamese Navy Petty Officer 3rd Class Nguyen Ben Kit. I was in Joker for many hours during the rescue efforts, Fuller said. The final news release was a 7th Air Force product because of the massive effort to rescue Hamilton. A Hollywood production of the incident entitled Bat 21, released in 1988, starring Gene Hackman, Danny Glover, and country music singer Jerry Reed, was not a true telling, according to Fuller, of the rescue mission. While the movie was accurate in some areas, it wasn't the real story. And Rick goes on to talk about his tour in general. Right. And he says, my tour involved visiting all of our rescue units, flying with them, writing articles and news releases, and arranging for news media and members of combat camera to sit alert and fly missions with the crews. The normal mission for the local base rescue units who flew the HH-43 Pedro helicopters involved scrambling when an inbound flight declared an emergency, rescuing the crew if they punched out or helping to extract them if they if they crashed. Several times I was flying training missions when an in-flight emergency was declared and I would be dropped wherever we were while the rescue crew responded to an emergency. Weight was an issue, he said. One such time in Da Nang, Fuller was within a kilometer of Marble Mountain, a U.S. Marine stronghold by day, but it was learned after the war controlled by the North Vietnamese by night. Fuller remembers the situational details for Air Force search and rescue missions to this day. That's that's fascinating. The idea that we controlled 
this territory during the day mm-hmm. and they controlled it at night. Yes. I, I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine what those folks had to go through yeah. there in country. Now, just one quick thing you call, you said that Colonel Fuller was at Joker and Joker is the rescue coordination center back at the base. Right. So now one thing about pararescuemen or the pararescue career field, their motto is so that others may live. Mm-hmm. Now, back in the 90s, I made some videos for their pararescue schoolhouse at Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. And even then, the broadcaster in me cannot help but edit that motto just a little bit. Mm-hmm. You probably know, as well as I do, the word that in most sentences can be removed without changing the meaning of anything. Yes. So. <laughs> I'm also an English teacher, as you know. So, so there you go. Yeah. So that others may live, you know, I made the suggestion once upon a time to a few PJs that their, their motto should be, so others may live. Mm-hmm. That's all they need. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure they took it well. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't think they've changed their motto since then, but that was my that was my suggestion once upon a time. Anyway, in your book, Colonel Fuller speaks very highly of the American Forces Network, AFN. Of course, in Vietnam, it was called AFVN, Armed Forces Vietnam Network. And in the 90s, we changed from the Armed Forces to the American Forces. What stories did Colonel Fuller share with you about AFVN? And I know right now you're writing a book Mm -hmm. about AFVN. Mm -hmm. What stories did he share with you? And what did AFVN mean to the troops back then, according to Colonel Fuller? Yeah, it meant everything. It was the way that the the troops basically had a touch with a touch of home they could learn what was going on back in the world as they called it uh, just being able to hear the music of the times you know we got to get out of this place by the animals right, course, right. Which, is, which is you know it seems like if there if there were a theme song for all the vietnam veterans i've ever met that'd be it you know that's the um, one they choose huh? yes absolutely yeah. yeah and and you know it was their connection to anything you know outside of uh, their day to day whether they were back in the rear or out in the boonies it basically uh, kept them alive uh, of course the the movie good morning vietnam you know uh, the story that uh, basically emanated from adrian cronauer and right. starred robin williams uh, in the movie, I think is, is for, you know, your listeners who have seen that movie or may see it in the future, uh, you know, uh, that captured it, you know, so well, uh, right. because they didn't have that, um, on a regular basis. And it was just, you know, it was uh, just no. how they stayed in touch with, with, with reality. Right. No, yeah. no internet, no Netflix exactly. back then. Yeah. So. In- interestingly enough, not only did AFVN affect or uh, come into the lives of our GIs in Vietnam, the Vietnamese people mm. were able to listen to AFVN. Right. Um, and, and, uh, you know, really able to latch on to what American culture was at that time and American music. And also, uh, it was a great uh, tool for them to improve their English. We have had what we call shadow listeners. Mm -hmm. And while AFN programming is directed towards military people, their families, DOD civilians, 
there has always been a large shadow audience in places like Japan mm -hmm. and Germany mm -hmm. and Vietnam. Absolutely. They tune in for American culture. Robert Plant, lead singer of Led Zeppelin, famously told the story on the David Letterman show once upon a time that he used to tune in and get AFN late at night because the AM signal traveled further at night right. and it was able to get to England. Mm -hmm. And he became a fan of rock and roll by listening to AFN. Mm -hmm. So AFN has definitely had a lot of influence over shadow audiences, no matter where they are. Internationally. Internationally, right. for sure. Retired Chief Warrant Officer, military journalist, and college professor Mark Philip Yablanca, author of Vietnam Bao Chi, Warriors of Word and Film. So many more stories in your book. We just scratched the surface here today. A great read. Thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it, Mark. George, it was an honor. And I just would close by saying thank you for your service and for doing what you do for our country, all of you who are listening to this interview. And if someone were interested in more of your stories, I would say log on to my website, which is warstoriespress.com, www.warstoriespress.com, and they'll see a lot of my work that is Vietnam-related and also work that I did when I myself was in uniform. If you are interested in Vietnam or military journalism, I definitely recommend and thank you for listening to The Leadership List, a podcast produced by the American Forces Radio Network and the Defense Media Activity. I'm George Maurer, and remember, great leaders never stop learning. The Leadership List is a production of the American Forces Radio Network. Creative consultants, Dave Beesing, CEO of Sound That Brands, a podcast development business, and AFN Radio's Grant Peters and Tom Arnholt. Additional narration provided by Tony Scott.